Thanks for listening to Mosaic, a Jesus-centered communities podcast. Our goal is to help people experience a Jesus-centered life. You can find out more about us at welcometomosaic.info. We invite you to subscribe to this podcast as well as rate and review it so others can hear it as well. Enjoy the message. Good morning. Man, we are in just a really incredible season in the life of the church. Advent. It's, as Taylor said, it's, it's where we anticipate the arrival of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so I'm curious, uh, just a show of hands, or if you're online, just a little hand emoji would work too. Um, how many of you are familiar with Advent in the, the traditional sense, like what we just did, the candles in church, the, the lighting? Okay, oh, all right, this is a healthy, healthy group, cool, great. Um, it's fairly new territory for me. You know, I, I really didn't grow up um, in that tradition. And so maybe over the last five years or so, um, I've experienced that and appreciated it. And so I've kind of been learning as I go, to be honest. But um, as I've experienced Advent, I'm just drawn to this twofold nature that it has. You see, Advent, in the most traditional sense, is as much about looking back and remembering Christ's birth as it is about looking forward towards his return. And so there's this beautiful parallel between the church today anticipating the arrival of their Messiah and the Old Testament people of Israel doing the very same thing. And so this leads us to two cities, the name of this um, series. Like, what, what does that have to do with Christmas or Advent? Maybe it seems out of place to you. And so the reason that we're doing that is as we walk through Advent together, we're going to look at um, two cities. And we're going to look at it through the lens of, of Bethlehem, where the Messiah was promised to be born for Israel, and our city, or the most identifiable, that's a hard word to say, most identifiable city near us, Denver. And so what is it that the people were looking for in Israel? And what is it that we, some 2,000 years later, are looking for as well? And so as we look at the book of Isaiah, it's filled with prophecy about Jesus. And so today we're going to spend some time in Isaiah, uh, chapters 8 and 9. If you're one of those early flippers, you like to get there in advance, there you go. Um, and we're going to try to understand what exactly was Israel looking for in their Messiah. But before we do that, don't we just love a good Thanksgiving meal. You feel me? Oh, only one woo? Are you guys still in the turkey coma? That's what, you had some turkey this morning. Turkey omelet. Um, yeah, I just, I love it. Like, take a look. I mean, look at the table. There's all this food. Isn't it majestic? That's not my table. That's just a kind of a classic. But I do want to show you my perfect plate. This is my perfect plate. You're laughing at me. This is so terrible. Um, turkey. I'm a drumstick guy. I like the dark meat. It's juicy. It's good. Um, mashed potatoes. No gravy. Gravy is just there to mask a bad potato. If you do it right, there is no need for gravy. And then uh, stuffing. <laughs> stuffing. 
Original stovetop, anyone? I mean, I know it's, it's easy, but it's, it's delightful. This is my perfect plate, except it's missing dessert. Gotta have dessert, so you just kinda, I, my dessert, two slices of pie, naturally, um, pumpkin, and um, this time I tried a pumpkin spice whipped cream, don't recommend, um, but then, Homemade pecan pie. Oh, yeah. I, I'm, I think I need to leave. I'm hungry. Um, it's so good. And Lauren makes the best homemade pie. And I ate all of it. It's gone. So sorry. Um, now, you know what this means? My plate. There's some things that didn't make it onto my plate, clearly. You know, cranberry sauce, sweet potatoes, yams. Some of you weirdos are into green beans. I don't get that. Um, it doesn't mean those things are bad except for the green beans. Um, I just, I recognize I can't consume everything on the Thanksgiving table. And so I just, I pick and choose like the things I really, really want. And so the reason I bring this up, today's message might feel a little bit like Thanksgiving. You might not consume everything in the message. And just like you might have passed on cranberry sauce or green beans, totally get that. Um, I want you to know, it's okay today if you don't grab a hold of, of everything because it's all good stuff. And I do want us to take this holistic look at the passage today. So I just want to encourage you, wherever the Spirit's leading you, like, dig in to that. So let's begin by stating the, the obvious. I mean, we all know this. You can't trust the government. I, I don't mean that in like, you know, the tinfoil on your head conspiracy theory kind of way. Like, Weird Al, you can, you can go now. Um, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying you don't have to be a political analyst to see that our government, our politicians, our leaders... Are broken. And so with that, there seems to be quite a bit of disillusionment with the current political situation. And it's a reasonable response, right? And we should care about the state of our government and we're smart people. So we should recognize when there are issues plaguing our nation or our political spheres. What's disappointing for me, is when Christians, for whatever reason, allow this reality to produce a sense of hopelessness and despair. As a pastor, it's extra disappointing because to see people paralyzed and crippled by the state of the government it, it, is that that level of disillusionment by a cultural moment is an indication of misplaced hope. Because if you're a follower of Jesus, you should have a totally different hope. A, a hope that's not dependent on circumstances and culture. So guess what? It really wasn't any better for the city of Bethlehem or the nation of Israel. 
And in the book of Isaiah, it's, it's a difficult moment. It's a, it's a cultural crisis. It's a moment of, of great fear. And they're, they're trying to figure out, like, where is this leader and this kingdom that God promised? So God sends prophets to remind the people not to trust in natural leaders and, and not to trust in your own wisdom. And this was a pretty consistent message to the people of Israel. They wanted a king, and God's like, trust me, you do not want a king. They are the worst. But they didn't listen. They're like, no, we, we do. We want a king. So God gave them kings. And, um, you know, some of the kings were, were pretty good, but most of them were not. And they just sought to feed their own ego and need for power. And honestly, even the best of the best all seem to have some type of massive moral failure. King David, anyone? So Bethlehem or, or Israel, they face the very same thing that we face today. And it's the question, where will we fix our gaze? So today, as I said, we're going to be in Isaiah, primarily in chapter 9, but, but I want to give us some context and look at Isaiah 8, starting in verse 19. It says, when someone tells you to consult mediums and spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Why consult the dead on behalf of the living? Consult God's instruction and the testimony of warning. If anyone does not speak according to this word, they have no light of dawn. Distressed and hungry, they will roam through the land. When they're famished, they will become enraged, and looking upward, will curse their king and their God. They will look towards the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom, and they will be thrust into utter darkness. That's encouraging, right? But really, these words are convicting because these people who are called to place their hope in the very same God that we're called to place our hope in, they end up looking only to the earth and earthly solutions. And so the nation of Israel... They, they have the law, they have these, these prophets, but instead they're consulting mediums and, and spiritists rather than trusting in God's word. And so instead of trusting God, they look to the earth and they hear the wrong message. And they find themselves trusting earthly leaders. And there's, there's something within the human psyche and like our ability to organize as a species. We're just drawn to charismatic leaders. It's extraordinary. And today, our culture um, seems to be increasingly spiritual, but this spirituality is often practiced in defiance or ignorance of the one true God. So here's an example of somebody who's, who's worshiping a leader. This is Spike Lee, and he is anticipating what Obama would do for America. So here's his quote. He says, when that happens, when he becomes president, it will change everything. You'll have to measure time before Obama and after Obama. 
It's an exciting time to be alive now. The presidency of the first African-American will ripple throughout arts and sports and more. Everything is going to be affected by this seismic change in the universe. Now, for a nation that has the stain of slavery on it, electing an African-American president was a triumph. It was real progress. But this quote was just a bit, a touch too messianic for any man to live up to, right? I mean, what hope did Obama have when people are saying the entire universe is going to change because of you? You're going to bring renewal in every sphere of culture and in human history is going to be measured before you and after you. It's too much pressure. He, he couldn't live up to it. Now, it was refreshing that he just was married to one woman and he was a good dad. But how bad is your culture when your heroes simply stay married and raise their kids? Now, if it's not a charismatic leader that we place our hope in, we often will place our trust in the government. So I want to just give you a really broad, super broad view of human history. And every moment in human history, there's humanity seeking a righteous form of governance to deal with the brokenness of our world. And so as we look back through history, you've got the pharaohs enslaved Egypt. The Assyrians, they produced the effects of the atomic bomb by sowing salt into the fields so that no one could harvest or grow crops for multiple generations. The Greeks, Alexander the Great, he sought to speak truth, the, the fruits of the Greek wisdom, but after Alexander dies, the kings break up the world and they fought with selfish ambition. Then the Roman Empire, they conquer them. And state government sets up a great road system. But what ends up happening is it props up the elites and crushes the poor in the name of peace. The barbarian hordes come along. They basically plunge the world into darkness. The divine right of kings then dominates Christendom in Western Europe during the Middle Ages. The government was only as good or bad as the king. And hence, it was not usually very good. The American Revolution broke away from the monarchy and established a government of the people, by the people, for the people, in the famous words of Abraham Lincoln. But our government has proven to be far from perfect because of the sinful hearts of the people, the sinful hearts by the people, and the sinful hearts for the people. And to be clear, I still, I believe that a representative democracy is, is the best form of government, but we're not in great shape right now. Then, communism comes along promising that it's all about the working class, nations experiment with communism, and it's brutal, crushing millions of people. And so what does this all point to? What it really points to is that there is an ache in our heart for someone to do something about this. For, for someone to fix the mess because it just seems to be getting worse 
and worse. It, it, it seems hopeless. And the temptation is to take our eyes off Jesus. And if we do, we'll act like those around us, which means we'll experience darkness and despair rather than hope. We'll look at God and we'll curse him for what's happening in our world. And so this passage was written that the darkness, this gloom, this cursing the king, it was written to the people of Israel. And then in the middle of this brokenness comes this messianic promise of life in Isaiah 9. It says, nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. And so I want to give you a, a little geography of the ancient Near East. And so if you look at this, this map here, you'll see up, up near the top there, Naphtali. And then the purple right below is Zebulun. So that's, that's the area that is um, referenced in this passage. And so when the Assyrians come in, they absolutely decimate Israel. And when that happens, the first to get hit are those two names mentioned here, the land of Naphtali and Zebulun. And so the front line of the Assyrian assault comes and they bear the weight of the Assyrian army and they're absolutely devastated. They're conquered in every conceivable way. And so for these people, the words of hope spoken by the prophet would have been extraordinary. But it's not just a promise of light. What you see next is victory over the darkness. So we read in verse 4, for... As in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. And so I, I love the imagery here because the leader that they long for is going to conquer. He, he's going to relieve them of their burdens. He will free them from their oppression. And in the same way, we long for a God to bring victory over the darkness. But, but how's he going to do this? Well, he continues with this famous passage in verse 6. He says, for to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. See, Isaiah is talking about the person of Jesus. Jesus is that leader that we long for. And so in essence, what the prophet wants us to see is that if you look to the earth, you're going to come to the harsh realization that you cannot save yourself. And so into the middle of that brokenness, grace steps in and you have the birth of Jesus. The, the child is born. The son is given. And so we're receiving the leader that we long for and that we should give. That, that truth should give us immense hope. And, and we believe it, 
if people would just see Jesus and understand the good news of the gospel, that they too would have hope. When I look at the world today, I, I see such hopelessness. And I, I just think, if everybody chose to live as a disciple of Jesus, it would be so different. You know, if everyone just took the Sermon on the Mount and said, I, I submit to the Lordship of Jesus, the kingdom of heaven would come to earth. Jesus is the leader that we long for. He's the source of our hope. And so what does this passage say will actually mark the life of Jesus? Well, the first thing it says is he's going to be a wonderful counselor. Have you ever been to a bad counselor? No, I heard a couple of like, whoa, yeah, yeah, I have. Um, I, I haven't, fortunately, but I, I've talked to people who have. And it's, you know, it's one of those things, you're like, oh, how, how was it? And I was like, it was terrible. Like, I could have Googled that. But when you sit with someone who understands the human heart, someone who has insight, it's wonderful that they speak into your life. They, they see the things that you can't see for yourself, the, the blind spots, the pathway forward. This is the claim that Jesus is a wonderful counselor. And if you've spent any time reading the teachings of Jesus, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Jesus spoke with incredible wisdom. His insight into human nature, into the human heart, into what really matters. He is a wonderful counselor. But he doesn't just stop at good advice. He's also the mighty God. You see, the difference between Jesus and a wise teacher is that Jesus is the mighty God. So he has the power to do what he advises you. You take wisdom from anyone else and you are just left to do it within your own power. But Jesus lives inside of you and empowers you to live out his teachings. He gives us the power to live out his wonderful counsel. He's also an everlasting father. He, he shows fatherly compassion for his disciples. And not just that he gave his life for them on the cross, he was always giving his life for them, washing their feet, speaking truth to them, caring for them, taking them aside, giving them feedback on how they're doing as disciples. He's extraordinarily kind. And then he's called the Prince of Peace. Jesus is the one who came to establish peace on earth. I mean, he's literally getting arrested, and one of the disciples cuts off someone's ear, and he's like, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry about that. And, or, you know, as the meme says, Happy New Ear! <laughs> oh no, sorry, wrong holiday. Um, he heals the guy's ear. Why? What is the guy going to do? The guy arrests him so that he can be crucified. He's incredibly peaceful. Jesus welcomes in women who had no real value in that culture. 
He cares about the outsiders who've fallen short and are considered sinners. The sexually broken, he welcomes them in and gives them a sense of peace, dignity, and meaning. He cares about the oppressed that don't fit in. He brings peace wherever he goes. And so when you look through all of recorded human history, the leader that we long for is the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. That is Jesus. And we celebrate him. And this is our message to the world. It's not religion. It's not morality. It's the person of Jesus Christ. He is the true source of our hope. And in verse 7, it says, of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. I mean, isn't that true? Like, we are here thousands of years later. And as far as I know, there aren't any ongoing societies dedicated to Julius Caesar. You know, good morning, everyone. We're here for the Julius Caesar Society. We're just trying to live by his wisdom and example. No, it doesn't exist. We're still here because of the compelling nature of Jesus. And Jesus comes to bring in his kingdom and of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. And so if you go through all of the leaders in all of history, there is but one that passes the smell test, and it's Jesus Christ. Now, I understand that, that we aren't used to um, giving things time to work themselves out. You know, as Americans, we, we, know, we can fix the world in just one four-year political cycle. No? Sorry. Um, the church turned the Roman Empire over in a way that is just so hard to fathom. Okay, so I, I want you to just imagine this. Close your eyes, whatever, whatever will help you, but imagine a terrorist cult leader in the U.S. He claims to be, um, you know, that he's going to be the president of the United States. He has a few followers. They catch him. And they kill him. We execute him. Electric chair. And he's a laughing stock. Everyone is saying, like, this guy thought he could take on America. Like, seriously. That's the scenario. Then, imagine 400 years later, the actual president of the United States declares that our nation now follows this person that we executed. That he's the son of God, risen from the dead, and he is now the official head of our nation. Like, can you wrap your head around that? Not happening. And yet, it's exactly what happened in the Roman Empire. The empire eventually bowed its knee to the person of Jesus. 
And so often people will say the early church changed the world. They did. And it took hundreds of years to do it. And so if we want to change the world, we need to live as Advent people. Living under the reign of the leader that we have always longed for. Living in his kingdom of light and looking forward to a hopeful future that he promises. That's what God wanted for Israel. For them to place their hope in the promised Messiah. The leader that they longed for. And it's what God wants for us today as well. And in the same way they did in the early church, we must do this graciously and humbly. And it's really easy today in this like Netflix, Uber Eats, Amazon Now, Grubhub kind of world that we live in to wonder, like, what is the church doing about the state of the world? Now, this might seem trivial, but every Sunday we gather to lift the name of Jesus and then we meet in little homes throughout the week to sacrificially love one another and center our hearts on him. We, we find ways to serve the local community by helping people who need a Thanksgiving meal, providing hope for people in working, that are working through divorce or loss every Tuesday night. Sharing what we've found in Jesus around the grove through, through little shoeboxes with gifts and a gospel message. Or incredible partners who've dedicated their life to sharing Jesus in South America. So, I'm, what we're doing, it may not seem dramatic, but this is how the church changed the world. We pray for one another. We, we love those around us and we trust God to do what he said. So the solution is not to give up hope. The, the solution is pressing into the hope that God has given us to produce an alternative culture. When humble hearts meet the power of the Holy Spirit, culture transforms and God begins to move. So let me ask you today, where is your hope? There's such a great temptation to place it in the wrong leaders. They're more tangible. It seems immediate. Because we long for leaders that will bring hope. It's easy to, to look at the world around us, to see the, the brokenness, to see the pain, and to lose hope. This is the time of year where for so many, our hope gets challenged and we're facing despair. So here's how I want to close um, our message today. I want to pray a scripture over you. It's, it's Romans 15, 13. And the Apostle Paul, he's, he's writing to the church in Rome. The church in Rome is facing terrible persecution from Emperor Nero. Like one of the practices was that, that Nero would dip Christians in oil and light them on fire 
as tiki torches to light up his garden parties. This is what the people in Rome were facing. Rome was a a godless, corrupt, evil, depraved city. Christians are being persecuted, and this is what Paul says. He says, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Tiki torches, immorality, persecution, and Paul says, they don't know that we have a hope that comes from within. A hope that's not based on our circumstances. It's not based on the culture or the things happening around us. May God fill you with that hope. And so if you're here today and you just, you need an overflow of hope, I've got no joy. I have no peace, no hope. Can I just pray for you? If that's you, I just, I want to encourage you, just just place your hands out in front of you as a sign of surrender to God. And, and, And some of you, I know, you've been doing this church thing long enough that you're really good at faking it through those moments like this to look like you have it all together. But I'm asking you, would you just take a moment to be vulnerable? Not, not even to us, but to God. And just invite him to give you hope. Would you pray with me? God, we, um, we don't want to look to the earth for solutions. We want to look to you. Would you be the source of all of our hope? And and so God, I want to pray for people. People who are facing a broken marriage. There's no hope. In fact, it maybe even feels like there's no love. God, would you infuse that marriage and that person with hope? We pray for relationships. God, would you um, take the, the parent who's lost the relationship with their child, would you instill them with hope? The, the child who has no relationship with their parents, but you infuse a hope that only you can provide. For the person who is struggling to, to find work or to know where, where the next meal or, or paycheck is coming from, that the idea of Christmas gifts is completely overwhelming. God, would you provide hope, real, meaningful, tangible hope. The person who's facing a a medical diagnosis that they they just, they can't even wrap their heads around. Bring hope to that person, to that situation, God. Bring hope to your church. 
Would you show us your power? Would you move in a mighty way as the mighty God? You have done it throughout history. Would you do it here? And for my friends, I pray, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's message. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We invite you to connect with us. If you'd like to give to this ministry, you can do so at welcometomosaic.com slash give. Have a great week.